0: Welcome back to Well, That's Interesting, the, at first these things don't seem related, but they kinda are, edition. Today, (laughs) today is episode 143, Why You Can't Remember Being Born, and Can a Book Become a Lethal Weapon? Think about it. Think about it, my friends. Today is about birth and death. Specifically, in the first half of the show, we're going to try and answer the question, why the fuck can't we recall being born? I mean, what's your earliest memory? Is it the harrowing experience of the first day of school? Maybe it's the first time you tried ice cream or something sweet. Maybe it's the sound of someone's voice or the love of a toy. Well, I'm sure whatever it is, it goes way the fuck back. But I'm willing to bet some fat cash that you can't describe the moment of your glorious birth the room, the color of the eyes of the person who handled your chonky head as you slipped through the old vag canal or (laughs) C-section. Yes. Yes, I said slip through the old vag canal and I don't regret it. Uh, We're going to take a look at the latest theory as to why that's not a core memory and (laughs) uh, uh, what that tells us about human development. Then after the break, I'd like you to take a good look at your bookshelf. Now, uh, okay, thank you. Why don't you just walk on over and select a book that's about 240 pages and 8 inches by 5 inches, give or take. All right, I'll give you a second. Okay, now that it's in your hands, we must ask a logical question. Can we make this book a physical, deadly weapon? (laughs) I mean, could it kill you? Look at it. Can it become lethal? The answer, my friends, is yes. And we're going to break down a number of ways we can convert a beloved book into a powerhouse of energy and ouchiness. I'm serious. This, of course, means one thing, that after the break, it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Let's Read From A Book, Motherfucker. And that book is And Then You're Dead, by Cody Cassidy and Paul Doherty. And uh, this isn't a commercial or a plug. I just love this fucking book. And you should have a copy. Highly, highly recommend. Um, It's about 240 pages, eight inches by five inches, give or take. And we're going to use it to theoretically turn it into one of the most dangerous things on the planet. I know, how how much fucking fun is that? And uh, I'm Jill Chacha, by the way. And if this is your first time listening... Welcome to the flock, my pure business goose. Oh my God. Um, I need you to do one more thing for me to start the show. Please, fire up your fanciest time machine because we're heading on back to the roaring 80s and grungy 90s. Yes, my friends, over these two decades, we would find psychologist Carolyn Rovi Collier performing tests on itty bitty children. But uh, it, it, it's okay, don't worry, don't worry, it's all safe ethical, and honestly, it's kind of cute if you're into kids, and we'll get into the details in a second. Now, Carolyn wanted to know what and to what extent infants can remember, so she devised a series of challenges that were pretty revolutionary for the field of child psychology at the time. Uh, In one challenge, two to six-month-old infants were placed gently in a crib with a mobile hanging overhead. For a baseline number, researchers measured how much the babies kicked to get an idea of their natural propensity to shift and move their little legs. Then my friends, they quote, tied a string from the baby's leg to the end of the mobile so that whenever the baby kicked, the mobile moved. As you might imagine, infants quickly learned that they're in control. They liked seeing the mobile move so they kicked more than before. Uh, more than before the string was attached to their leg, (laughs) showing that they learned that kicking makes the mobile move. The version for 6- to 18-month-old infants was similar, but instead of lying in a crib, the infants sat on their parents' lap with their hands on a lever that would eventually make a train move around a track. At first, the lever doesn't work, and the the experimenters measured how much a baby naturally pressed down on the lever. Afterwards, they turned the lever on. So now every time an infant pressed pressed on it, the train moved around the track. Infants again learned the game quickly and pressed on the lever significantly more uh, more when it made the train move. End quote. From Vanessa Labue. Labue? Vanessa. Of the Conversation and Scientific American. Thank you, Vanessa. So my friends, that's... I mean, it's kind of cute, right? The kids learned a thing, and they played some, just having a wonderful fucking time. But here's the breakthrough. When the kids left the lab, left the mobile, and just left the train, when they came back, they still remembered how to use and control the damn things at that fucking age. Quote, Rovi Collier and colleagues found that at six months, if infants are trained for one minute, they can remember an event a day later. The older the infants were, the longer they remembered. She also found that you can get infants to remember events for longer by training them for longer periods of time and by giving them reminders. For example, by showing them the mobile moving very briefly on its own. End quote from Vanessa. The only Vanessa that works at uh, (laughs) The Conversation and Scientific American. Um, Now, my friends... In some, behold, just at six months, you and I were totally kicking ass and learning how to manipulate objects, and get this, we even could identify things right off the fucking bat at an even younger age than six months. Quote, within the first few days of life, infants can recall their own mother's face and distinguish it from the face of a stranger. A few months later, infants can demonstrate that they remembered lots of familiar faces by smiling at the ones that they see most often, end quote, also from Vanessa Labue. So let's just, that was a lot of information. Let's take a step back and take a look at these types of memories, the ones we just talked about, and compare them to your earliest memory. Now, learning how to move a mobile is a factual muscle memory that's been made, but the life experience of, say, the first day of school, or surfing down the old birth canal, well, that's an autobiographical memory. And even though we're born with massive, chonky heads, uh, the brain inside our lovable skulls may not yet be developed enough to have a sense of self. And that's why experiences prior to two or three years of age can't be recalled. This is a phenomenon called infantile amnesia. So, Why the fuck do we have it? And how do we know this is a thing anyway, right? Great questions. Let's start with how we know we are born pure business geese with no sense of self. Quote, Researchers have tested this ability in the past using a mirror recognition task called the rouge test. It involves marking a baby's nose with a spot of red lipstick or blush, don't tell Republicans, uh, then researchers place the infant in front of a mirror. Infants younger than 18 months just smile at the cute baby in the reflection, not showing any evidence that they recognize themselves or the red mark on their face. Between 18 and 24 months, or a year and a half to two years, toddlers touch their own nose, even looking embarrassed, suggesting that they connect the red dot in the mirror with their own face they have some sense of self." End quote. So that's right, my friends, we can start having body dysmorphia at uh, a year and a half. So <laughs> round of applause. <laughs> so anyway, not having a sense of self yet could be a reason for not recalling the experience of our earliest days. And some researchers add that we don't develop language until two years or so so we can't really form a narrative there's no i we us to use and no idea how to develop a story you can tell later on and lastly my fully formed business goose is the last thing is the hippocampus the region of the brain largely responsible for memory this is nowhere near fully developed in the infancy period as flamboyantly stated in the flamboyantly titled research paper called The Extended Trajectory of Hippocampal Development, Implications for Early Memory Development and Disorder. Jesus Christ, you know, okay. That was just the title. I have to get through the quote. (laughs) Wish me luck. Quote, rapid encoding of contextual details of overlapping patterns and retention of these details over sleep-dependent delays is needed to reflect adult-like memory function. A wealth of evidence suggests that these functions are not apparent until 18 to 24 months. End quote. So rapid encoding, retention, over sleep, doesn't really happen until a year and a half, two years. So there you have it, my friends. Some possible reasons why you don't recall the experience of people's reactions the first time they laid eyes on your misshapen newborn face, you know? I mean, trust me, it's probably for the best. We're <laughs> it took a while to settle, you know? <laughs> After the break, we're moving past the cute and the cuddly to something dangerous as fuck. Uh, and something you'll remember for sure. Grab your favorite book. You're going to turn those pages into one of the most devastating weapons around. Literally. I mean, knowledge is power and all that shit, but boy howdy, just wait until you hear what those chapters can really do. Stay tuned.
1: I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. Plus, my pal and noted China historian, Rana Mitter, joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Faceoff launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley
0: Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. Jill Chacha here from Well, That's Interesting. And I am absolutely thrilled to tell you about Spotify for Podcasters. get the idea. And you can monetize your podcast with no minimum listenership required. You could also set up monthly subscriptions and record ads just like this one. So, what are you waiting for? Download Spotify for Podcasters today and start changing the world. Oh, and please, stay interesting. 20th Century Studios presents Vacation Friends 2. Now streaming only on Hulu. Look at us, all together again. We just wanted to give you guys a real honeymoon. Shots! Shots! Yes! now streaming Dad! he was just released from jail where can i get a drink around here <laughs> back on vacation this place is nice it's drug lord nice i'm sorry drug lord nice with more baggage ever since he showed up he turned this relaxing vacation into chaos who does that vacation friends two rated r now streaming only on hulu and we're back we are so back and my friends my fellow book lovers are you ready have you picked your weapon of choice And by that, I mean, have you chosen a book, roughly 240 pages, 8 inches by 5 inches? Because those are the dimensions of the book I have in my hand as we speak, and it's what we'll be using for everyone's favorite segment. Let's read from a book, motherfucker. (laughs) Never gets old. (laughs) On page 108 of And Then You're Dead by Cody Cassidy and Paul Doherty, a question is asked. What would happen if you were killed by this book? Now, it's a great question, and a quizzical one, and I'm sure you're like, what the fuck? It's a book. Chill out. What are you doing? Well, you can't possibly physically harm someone with a soft cover, right? Ah, my friends, I'm happy to say anything is possible if you put your mind to it. As so wonderfully stated by the authors, quote, if you were to employ this book's kinetic chemical or nuclear energy, it could destroy you, the bookstore, or your entire city, end quote. So, oh my God, are you as excited as I am to find out how <laughs> this is a possibility? Yeah, that's what I thought. That's why we're friends. So let's start with ye olde kinetic energy. Now, dropping this book from, say, the Empire State Building wouldn't do shit, but stick with me here. Its terminal velocity is around 25 miles per hour. And in fact, you could actually throw it faster, clocking in at 50 miles per hour. That would leave a bruise on somebody, and you look like an asshat, but not lethal. So, I know what you're thinking. If throwing it or dropping it won't do anything, what if we shot it out of a cannon? Ah, you know what? I love the way you think. (laughs) Quote, at 100 miles per hour, this book would hit you with roughly the same force as a baseball, which would hurt, but most likely not kill you. So let's take it up a notch. A copy of this book hitting you at the speed of sound would penetrate your skin and knock you down. You would probably survive if it hit you in the arm or leg, but it, but if it hit you in the chest, the shock wave could disrupt your heartbeat and kill you. End quote. Ah, our first possible fatality. round of applause. <laughs> so... Thank you. Now, I think the odds are in your favor here, though, Um, especially if you see a book coming. uh, You're a little ninja, and I'm sure you'll be able to dodge it. So, you know what? Let's up the ante here. Quote, if we sped the book up to Mach 10, it would hit you with 5,000 times the energy of a 100-mile-per-hour copy. The book would compress and heat the air in front of it, so that it would fly towards you as a 3,000 degree Fahrenheit incandescent ball. <laughs> Unfortunately for you, it would not burn up entirely. Uh, it would if it were just lying there, but it's traveling towards you at 10 times the speed of sound, so it doesn't have the time to burn up. Instead, it would just embed itself in your chest as a 3,000 degree Fahrenheit paper End quote. All right, so I think that'll do it. Yeah, but you know what? Actually, no, I retract. As an American, it is my duty to take it to a nonsensical level, and the authors seem to agree with me as well, so let's get into it. Quote, Mach 200 (laughs) is the fastest man-made object, I'm sorry, Mach 200 is the fastest a man-made object has ever traveled, and I'm just going to say as an editor's note, uh, fastest so far. Now, to get the book up to this speed, you would need to build a giant potato cannon with a nuclear bomb functioning as the hairspray. What the fuck did I just say? Google potato cannon for the backstory on this. Uh, I don't have the time (laughs) in episode 143, but just stick with me here. Just stick with me here. Giant potato cannon, okay? Now, at this speed, Mach 200, the book is f- flying plasma. It's a flying plasma sphere coming toward you at more than 150,000 miles per hour. It would take 1 minute and 12 seconds to travel from New York City to San Francisco at this speed. If it hit you, you would be blown apart in a big mess of body parts and pages. End quote. Yeah, now that's what I'm talking about. God bless America. <laughs> so. Now, I think we can officially check kinetic energy off of our list. That was kind of wild. So let's move on to chemical energy, specifically caloric energy. Uh, Now, I know you're smarty pants, and I know you may know that to measure calories in food, scientists basically explode it. For real. The item is hydrated, ground up, and put into an oxygen-filled container, and then Poof, a spark is added, and the thing goes up in flames. And quote. The power of the explosion, equal to approximately a stick of dynamite, is the measure of the food's calories. End quote. Magical. Now, a book of the size we're talking about has about 1,600 calories, which is, by the way, the equivalent of five sticks of dynamite. Take a look at that book. Five sticks of dynamite right there. And it's fucking impressive, and that could totally kill you. So, the chemical energy in this book, my friends, is wild. But wait until you hear about its nuclear capabilities. You heard me. (laughs) Let's try and make this happen. What do you say? Quote, The atomic bomb that exploded over Nagasaki converted a single gram of mass, which is equivalent to less than half a page of this book, into energy. The trick is making the conversion happen. Fortunately, it's not easy to do. The Nagasaki bomb used plutonium because plutonium is unstable and easily converts to energy. Books are far more stable. So it's difficult to convert this book's mass into energy, but it's not impossible. The best way to accomplish it is to create a book of antimatter and combine it with your copy and then back away quickly. End quote. My friends, (laughs) brace yourself here, okay? Take a breath. Exhale. This little book of about 240 pages, if converted, would explode with so much power it would dwarf any hydrogen bomb ever detonated by the United States. And we blew up a lot of fucking bombs. (laughs) Needless to say, you'd be dead. And me, which sucks. But here, here is some good news. Now, combining a book with its antimatter equivalent is not going to happen anytime soon. According to And Then You're Dead, as of 2017, quote, the most antimatter we have ever made is 17 nanograms, or 17 billionths of a gram of antiprotons. So that took, and that took many years, end quote that's the good news. Here's the bad news. Mm-hmm. A single paper cut could kill you. That's right. I left the best for last. <laughs> a single paper cut. I. Are you ready for this? Because I fucking wasn't and I needed a minute. But <clears throat> So I'm going to give you a second, okay? I want you to think of your last paper cut. Okay, my friends, may I introduce you to necrotizing fasciitis? Necrotizing fasciitis. You want to say it together? Necrotizing fasciitis. Okay. You want to hear a quick case about it? That's too bad. We're going to do it. Quote, In 2008, an English engineer sliced a quarter-inch paper cut on his arm just before leaving on a trip to France. He soon developed flu-like symptoms, became weakened with fatigue, and grew delirious. He died in the hospital six days later from necrotizing Phasitis, a rare but nasty bug that infects through even the smallest wounds and cuts. End quote. Yeah, I know. You have questions like, what the fuck and how in the holy hell? Great questions. First, (laughs) this bacteria may already be living on your skin. It just needs a little chance, a random cut to get inside you. And once it gains entry, quote, part of necrotizing z- z- z, necrotizing fasciitis's charm, <laughs> part of its charm is that it lives within dead tissue that neither antibiotics nor white blood cells can access. And as the bacteria grows, it belches out a mix of exotoxins that kill your cells before your immune system can mount a defense. Without early intervention, you will progress beyond physical pain into severe sepsis. End quote. My friends, without medical attention, chance of survival is zero. For real. That is the number. It is zero. And get this, even with medical care, quote, seventy percent die, making it more deadly than the Ebola virus. End quote. That's from our beloved book. And um I told you, I told you the book in your hands, my friends, is a doozy. It's a doozy of a pickle. So show it respect and tell your friends how they too can die just from turning a page. <laughs> uh, thank you for listening, rating, subscribing. Yes, telling your friends about turn- how you could turn a book into a nuclear bomb. Well, now that I just said that, it's, I'm on a list somewhere. Uh, tell your friends about why they can't remember being born or slipping through the old vag canal. You can, you can use that phrase. I'm giving it to you. You're welcome. And please, stay interesting.